we will fight for our freedom, we will fight for our democracy, and we will fight for our soil. And we don't allow anybody, and uh, the Russian will pay a huge price if they attack us. Please, get out from Ukraine, Mr. Putin. From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. In order to understand what's going on in Ukraine, we need to go back to November 2013. Ukrainian president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, was offered a trade deal with the European Union, Ukraine's Western neighbor. But instead, Yanukovych took a bailout deal from Russia, Ukraine's Eastern neighbor. Many Ukrainians who wanted closer ties with Europe were really unhappy with this deal. More than 200,000 protesters gathered in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev today, furious over the government's refusal to sign a trade agreement with the European Union. Police used tear gas and clubs to beat back demonstrators who surrounded President Viktor Yanukovych's office. They are demanding his resignation, saying the government is corrupt and too tied to Russia. And it was very bad. Serious violent protests and riots broke out among the divided country. Yanukovych cracked down hard. There are graphic photos and video footage of Ukrainians being beaten by government authorities. It was terrible and led to the death of many Ukrainians. And so Ukrainians revolted even more. And ultimately, these protests led to a transition of power to a pro-Western government with Petro Poroshenko as the country's new president. Not long after this, Russia annexed Crimea. And annexed is just a fancy political word for forcibly taking land or territory. Russian soldiers in unmarked uniforms, under the auspices of protecting ethnic Russians living in the area from the new pro-Western leadership, stormed into Crimea and took over buildings and airports and eventually hundreds of these soldiers occupied Crimea. To what America is officially calling a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean Peninsula. President Obama speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin, apparently pulling no punches, although it is unclear what the White House can really do about all of this. Ukraine stands on the brink of disaster. After losing the Crimea Peninsula to Russian annexation, it now faces losing control of its eastern regions in a struggle with pro-Russian separatists. So there was a vote in Crimea, which no one knows if it was legitimate or not. And Vladimir Putin claimed that 90% of Crimeans wanted to become part of Russia. And that was it. He took it. The EU and the U.S. started slapping Russia with sanctions, and then things took an even more violent turn. Pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine started to rebel. They took control of eastern buildings and got even stronger when they were joined by Russian nationals with military experience who crossed over to help them. Ukraine's military fought back, but hundreds died. You might also remember when Russian-backed separatists shot down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, killing almost 300 people. 
Vladimir Putin responded to this horror in predictable fashion by hunkering down, deflecting blame toward Ukraine. This tragedy would not have happened if there had been peace on that land or if military operations in southeastern Ukraine had not been renewed. But U.S. leaders are blunt. While he didn't set the launch codes, Putin's support for the pro-Russian rebels in Ukraine believed to have fired the missile place a heavy burden on the man in the Kremlin. He has the most control over that situation. Uh, and so far, at least, he has not exercised it. I think he is responsible. We will fight for our freedom, we will fight for our democracy, and we will fight for our soil. And we don't allow anybody, and uh, the Russians will pay a huge price if they attack us. Please, get out from Ukraine, Mr. Putin. So how did this deep divide between Western and Eastern Ukraine start to begin with? What's been happening for the past five years since the conflict broke out? And what does Russia ultimately want from Ukraine? Today, Luke Coffey, director of Heritage's Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy, helps explain. Luke, in order to better understand why all this is happening, can you go a little farther back in history and explain the divide in Ukraine? Well, Ukraine um, plays a very important role in the formation of the modern uh, Russian state. Um, it is said that the earliest Russians, the Kievian Rus, originated from the area that's modern-day uh, Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. But we're talking going back more than a thousand years. So obviously, borders change, times change, people move in, people move out. In modern-day Ukraine, um, and including the Ukraine that was part of the USSR, the Soviet Union, was really a mixture of different ethnic groups. Um, today in Ukraine, you have ethnic Slavs, um, Slavic people who uh, will speak Russian or Ukrainian uh, in the eastern part of the country. And as you move further west and as you get across the, the Dnieper River, which the Dnieper River is the river that sort of divides Ukraine in half, you start to lose that Slavic uh, ortho Christian Orthodox feeling and you start to slowly transition to um, a more of a Polish and Catholic influence, or there's a small Hungarian minority or a small Romanian minority and a Polish minority. And you see that shift as you move from east to west. And it's a large country geographically, um, and it has a lot of people. So when people um, look at Ukraine and they, they paint a, a very simplistic picture of, well, it, it's Russian, it's really Russian, or um, it, it's not Russian, it's, uh, you know, something else. Uh, that's a very black and white view of the situation when in reality it's more complex. Would you say that this lack of identity contributed to the conflict? Well, I would say the, um, I would say the, the presence of the uh, Russian-speaking population and well, when I say Russian speaking, most Ukrainians will speak Russian, but I mean like the ethnic Russians uh, concentrated uh, mainly in the uh, east of the country. There are other pockets throughout the country, but mainly in the east uh, of the country. When um, th they realized that they didn't have very many economic opportunities, very many uh, political opportunities for them or for their children, um, they became more susceptible to Russia's disinformation. And Vladimir Putin, you have to remember, has um, had a policy since 1999 called the compatriot policy. And the compatriot policy is a policy where Russia feels obligated to defend the interests of Russian compatriots, no matter where they might live. 
Um, and when the Soviet Union broke up, it left a lot of people who could be classified as a compatriot outside of Russia's borders. So when Russia goes into a place like Crimea or eastern Ukraine, they don't see themselves as taking something that belongs to someone else. They see themselves as taking something that belongs to them. And this is really the crux of the problem. You had a disenfranchised, um, or I should say a marginalized, uh, to be more accurate, um, sector of Ukrainian society in eastern Ukraine and also in Crimea that became very susceptible to Russian hybrid warfare and misinformation. And that set the conditions for the eventual invasion of Crimea and the separatist conflict that is produced by Russia that didn't exist before in eastern Ukraine. So fast forwarding a little bit, since the annexation of Crimea, how many people have died in this conflict? Uh, the number is uh, over 11,000 now. Wow. So, and it's taken a toll on the Ukrainian economy that totals the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in lost economic output. Um, Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, was 5% of Ukraine's whole territory. And now that was annexed to be part of Russia. And then you have um, uh, major ports, port cities, that while are still under the control of the Ukrainian government, uh, the ship shipping to and from these ports are heavily restricted and in some cases blocked by Russia, which impacts um, the Ukrainian economy as well. So how much of Ukraine is actually a war zone right now? Can you kind of explain to me where all this is happening? Yep. Well, the Crimean Peninsula is under a full um, Russian occupation, so there's no fighting that goes on there. Um, it's under Russia's complete control. It's de facto um, part of Russia, but it's de jure uh, part of Ukraine. It's internationally recognized to be part of Ukraine's borders, but it's now controlled by Russia. And then there's actual fighting going on in the southeastern corner of the country in two provinces. They're called Oblask, but uh, for all intents and purposes, they're provinces. And they're in, it's Luhansk and Donetsk. And it's actually not all of each province. It's parts of each. And the separatists have created a so-called uh, People's Republic of Luhansk and a People's Republic of uh, Donetsk. And so there's these two individual republics that have since, since merged. And they're fighting as an entity backed by Russia, I mean, make no mistake about it, weapons, special forces, tanks, equipment from Russia, um, fighting against Ukrainian forces along uh, a front line that will stretch um, several hundred miles. So we hear this term a lot. What is the Kerch Strait and why is it significant? Well, this goes back to what I said earlier about key Russian or key Ukrainian ports that are under the control of Ukraine that are um, access to and from these ports are controlled or restricted by Russia. That you have the that you have the Black Sea, and then inside of the Black Sea, because of the way the Crimean Peninsula sticks out, you have a smaller sea, the Sea of Azov. And to get to the Sea of Azov, you have to pass through the Kerch Strait. And the Kerch Strait is this narrow body of water that connects connects the Black Sea with the Sea of Azov. Um, and it, on either side of it, you have Crimea on one side and then the Russian Federation on the other. And over the summer, tensions have been really rising in this part of the world uh, along the Kerch Strait because Russia built a bridge 
to connect the Russian mainland with their newly conquered land of Crimea. And this is a very controversial bridge for two reasons. In Russia, it was controversial because of the price tag. It costs over $4 billion at a time when they have a terrible economy, economic sanctions are biting. Many people question the value of this. And there's also some dubious engineering, apparently, and they've already had problems with it structurally. So there's a safety issue. And then the other aspect, the other controversial aspect is with Ukraine. Um, large Panamax ships, the large cargo ships that when you when you picture cargo ships in your mind, it's the massive ones that you, you, you see uh, you know, images of. Uh, these ships uh, at one time accounted for uh, more than a quarter of all the shipping, and now they're too big to go under the new bridge. Um, so this has seriously reduced the amount of uh, trade exports and imports that Ukraine can conduct through the strait. And Russia has also taken measures to block um, shipping going through the strait as well, just to harass Ukraine. And it, it also adds sort of a legitimacy to Russia's claim over Ukraine by connecting the two, correct? Yeah, well, that's how they see it for sure. Because right now the only um, way to access Crimea— by land is uh, was through Ukraine itself, and Russia was um, in the earlier days of the war was probably hoping to advance as far to uh, far enough to create that land bridge from mainland Russia into Crimea, um, but they were unable to do so. So they created they 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 built a bridge. So in the eyes of the Russians, this bridge helps legitimize their claim. But in the eyes of the international community, um, it's a blatant violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. So many say that Ukraine and Russia relations are, are the worst they've ever been. And that's due to an incident that happened recently. What happened? Well, it happened in the Kerch, uh, near the Kerch Strait. Actually, we should clarify, it happened um, near the Kerch Strait but in international waters. Um, you, three Ukrainian Navy ships were traveling from Odessa, which is a Ukrainian port. Um, in the west of the country, uh, through the Kerch Strait to Mariupol, which is a major Ukrainian port in the east of the country. Um, and to access Mariupol, you have to go through the Kerch Strait. And uh, Mariupol is important for um, trade, uh, metal, uh, steel, iron ore that comes out of Mariupol's port account for uh, roughly a, almost a third of Ukraine's net export revenue. Um, and these three Navy ships were just going from one port to the other. And uh, when they got to the bridge, there was there were only a few places with the bridge that you can pass under now. And the Russians put a tanker horizontally to block it and uh, stop the passive passage of these Russia, of these Ukrainian ships. They went back into they were out in international waters and then they were um, rammed and then shot at by the by the Russian uh, they're called Coast Guard in the in the press, but really they're FSB Border Patrol boats. Now the FSB is like the um, modern day KGB, and they have their own patrol boats. So it was essentially the modern day KGB that rammed and then fired on and then captured the three ships and twenty four sailors, six of whom were were wounded, and they're now being held in Crimea, occupied Crimea, and there is even some talk about some of them being moved all the way to Moscow, which is probably, you know, close to a thousand miles away. So here in the United States, if that had happened in international waters to a U.S. ship, that would be an act of war. Yeah, certainly so. And we shouldn't forget that this act was a continuation of a war that is already taking place. People forget that there is actually a war going on in, in eastern Ukraine. Bullets are flying Soldiers are dying or being wounded every week. 
Um, and it's a it's a real life uh, affair, and you know we shouldn't forget that um, in 21st century Europe there is a very complex system of trenches that soldiers are fighting in, um, shooting at each other from across a no man's land, not too dissimilar from what we saw a hundred years ago with World War One. We'll be right back after this short break. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right. And if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. So what steps is the Ukrainian government taking since this happened? Well, they um, have done a number of things. Uh, they're trying to uh, rally international support um, to raise awareness of the uh, the maritime situation and the fact that U- Ukrainian uh, shipping, commercial shipping, and its naval vessels aren't allowed the sort of free access that they feel like they're entitled to. Um, more controversially, though, uh, the uh, president Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, um, instituted a, a partial martial law. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I say partial because um, it's only in certain parts of the country, about half of the country, and it's um, only 30 days long, whereas other types of martial law in under Ukrainian law can be, I think, up to 60 or 90 days. Um, and basically, this puts restrictions on um, political gatherings, um, campaigning, uh, this sort of thing, Um, which this is controversial because we're running up into Ukrainian elections next year, but this should end before the elections happen. Um, But nevertheless, it is still controversial. So in a sense, is it anything that would rise tensions further? Well, uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian government says it's a prudent act to um, respond to uh, increased escalation from, from Russia. Um, there are there's another view that uh, you know he, President Poroshenko is using this for political reasons. He had to be seen as doing something. This was the easiest thing for him to do, and it's really not going to change much. And then there's the whole debate that we have here also in the United States about trading certain liberties for security, more security. Um, and do you have to do this to be more secure? And should a democracy have to you know do this? So there's a there is a debate going on in the policy community on if this was a good thing or not. But um, in another act uh, by the government, they have prohibited Russian males from the ages between the ages of 16 and I think 60. I could be off there by a few years, 60 or 65 from entering Ukraine, basically military age males. And uh, they've implemented this and that's already in force, because if you remember what happened in, in early Late 2013, early 2014, um, you had the so-called little green men kind of pop up in places around Ukraine. And, um, the, you know, they were said to be local activists and separatists, um, but in reality, they were Russian special forces. So, and we know this from, you know, 
lazy uh, social media management on behalf of the Russian, you know, 19-year-old soldier who geotags himself in eastern Ukraine right. when he's not supposed to be there. Um, so we, we have seen measures taken by the Ukrainian government. I think for the most part, they've struck right balance. Um, but we shouldn't forget that this is a very deadly situation. Ukraine is fighting for its existence, for its survival. In many ways, the, the future viability of the transatlantic community is being fought on the front lines in eastern Ukraine. I mean, they're fighting uh, the, the Russian invaders in many ways for us right now. And we should do what we can to support them for this. And we should not forget that and it was Russia that invaded Ukraine. Russia is the aggressor. Ukraine is the victim. It's not the other way around. What does Russia want? What does Putin want out of this? Well, Russia sees, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that Ukraine plays an important role in the foundation of the modern Russian state. So in the Russian mentality, if Russia doesn't, in Putin's mentality, if Russia doesn't have control or greatly influence Ukraine, then Russia is merely an Asian power and it's not a European power. So Russia sees its involvement in Ukraine as existential to its European identity in many ways. And also, Putin has ideas of the Russian Empire and the greatness of it and goes back to those images and wants to promote a, a policy that will bring that back to the Russian people. And this is why when people say what we see today in Russia is Cold War behavior, it's Soviet behavior, I think this is wrong. What we see today in Russia is not Soviet behavior, it's imperial behavior. It's how Russia behaved during before behaved before the Bolshevik Revolution, during the time of the Tsar, when you had the Tsar on the throne calling the shots, trying to spread Russian influence um, throughout the region using all tools of government, military, security, trade, economics, di diplomacy. And that's what we see today with Russia. Switching gears a little bit, has President Trump been helpful in aiding Ukraine? Well, absolutely. Uh, Ukraine has benefited greatly from the Trump administration. And, you know, let's be honest, there are many of us in the policy community who, during the campaign, were wondering, you know, where would a Trump administration go when it comes to issues like uh, Ukraine or NATO? And uh, by far, Trump has done, has been the toughest president on Russia since um, Ronald Reagan. And uh, he's helped Ukraine in ways that seemed impossible during the Obama years. Um, whether it's providing advanced uh, anti-tank weapons, the Javelin anti-tank weapon system, which is probably one of the best in the world. The Obama administration refused to provide this to the Ukrainians. The Trump administration has provided them. In, in addition to um, other lethal weapons, uh, more training. Uh, and, you know, during the Obama administration, they were sending over blankets and, you know, like military rations and stuff, which is nice, but, you know. If you're a soldier on on the front lines, you you need a little bit more than that. And you you have Trump's critics who will say, um, well, you know, look what he says about Russia, or you know, look look at his Twitter account. And I'll tell you this, having spoken to Ukrainian soldiers, if I was a Ukrainian soldier on the front lines in Luhansk, and I had a choice between having that javelin anti tank missile or a strongly worded tweet, I would pick that javelin anti tank missile any day of the week. 
And that's actually what they're getting. So um, I think most Ukrainians are satisfied with the um, with the level of cooperation they are getting from the U.S. Last question, Luke. What do you see happening here? I know that's an impossible question because there's a lot that could happen, but you've been studying this for a long time. What do you predict? Well, considering this is recorded, whatever I say will not happen and then it'll be forever uh, around for people we to listen to when update. I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think... Uh, and on the long-term level, looking out into the future, the ultimate goal of Russia is to keep Ukraine out of the Euro-Atlantic community, so out of NATO, out of the European Union, out of these European and Atlanticist groupings and structures, and more aligned towards Russia, the Eurasian Economic Union, the, com- uh, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is sort of the Russian equivalent of NATO. Um, that's the long-term goal. And Russia has perfected this, uh, this um, uh, policy, this method that if, if they just go in and partially invade a country and then partially occupy it, it will keep them out of groupings like NATO and the EU forever because, frankly speaking, people in NATO don't want to deal with bringing in an, a member whose territory is already under partial occupation. So this is Russia's long-term strategy. In terms of a short-term strategy, I think, uh, I well, I talked about the so-called uh, republics in Luhansk and Donetsk. And I think Russia will want to try to um, make these, uh, these entities m- more like viable states where they can have the, the, the functions of a, of a country. And this requires certain transit nodes, um, the Luhansk power plant, the Mariupol, that city I refer to, its port and its port infrastructure, the rail links connecting all of this. This is where I think Russia, um, you're going to see them gradually try to take more key areas that— More uh, infrastructure. Infrastructure, things like this that are needed for a, vi- for a state. And uh, that's why I think um, the recent incident in the Kerch Strait was um, so concerning because this had a direct impact on Mariupol and its port. So Russia's slowly strangling that. Thank you for your work on this, Luke. No, thank you for having me today. And that's it for this episode of Heritage Explains. If you liked today's podcast, please be sure to tell your friends about it and spread the word on social media. We'll be back next week when Tim Dusher talks about China's relationship with Hollywood. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.